If you're just joining us, we're actually continuing this camp meeting series called Forward to the Finish, where we're examining different heroes of the faith, these people that motivate us and compel us forward to run that race hard towards the finish line of faith. And today, I just have to confess, I am so excited about talking, helping us discover together this warrior poet by the name of David, one of my favorite heroes of the faith in the Bible. And I'm going to be addressing and talking about the topic of the essential lesson of faith from the life of David. And I just want to invite you to bow your heads one more time as we study God's word here tonight. So let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, thank you for pouring your spirit upon our local gathering here. But thank you in a special way for touching every single person watching online right now. Every single person listening on the radio. To those watching from a couch on a screen, to those watching on an iPad or a smartphone, to those that are driving and listening on the radio. Father, thank you because we know that your spirit is not limited by location. Your presence can be with them just as powerfully as if they were right here. So Father, we give up this time to you now as your word is taught. We do thank you and we praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to share with you an essential truth about storytelling, if I may, and it's this, that a hero is defined by the obstacles they overcome. And I'm going to share with you a few examples of some heroes, and you tell me whether or not, in your opinion, they cross the threshold of being a hero. Can we do that tonight for a few minutes? All right, I'm going to start off with Captain Sully Sullenberger, in your opinion, if you know the story, does he cross the threshold of heroism? I think most of us would agree, yes. For the uninitiated and for those that don't know his story, flight 1539, two minutes after takeoff, a flock of Canada geese disabled both of the engines on the aircraft. Now, look, I'm no pilot. My father is a pastor, chaplain, but while he was in seminary, he got his flying license here at Andrews University. But from what I understand, if one of the engines of an aircraft is disabled, that's not good news. But you can make do. You can safely land. It's not the end of the world. But if both of the engines in an aircraft go down, you better start praying. Because the airplane is going to go down, and it's going to go down quick. And so Captain Sully, as is called, he quickly triangulated, and he determined that, no, in fact, he was not going to have enough time to make it back to LaGuardia Airport. And so he ditched the plane, as they say. He determined that the very best and safest place to land was going to be right there on the Hudson River. Praise God, he defied the odds. What's the number? 155 souls. Every single person walked out alive. He was the last person to leave the airplane. You tell me, does Captain Sully cross the threshold of being a hero? I would say so. Okay, how about a really easy one, a really general one? All our medical workers, our nurses, and our doctors during this COVID-19 era, can we call them heroes? 
I hope so. I mean, these people that are going out when everyone else wants to stay in. These people that are donning the gear of this seemingly invisible war and pandemic, and they are bravely doing the deed every single day. Some of you are within that circle. I know people in this community who are having to physically distance from their families. They're living in little mobile homes. They're living separated from their families because they're working with some of these people that are more exposed to COVID-19. Can we call them heroes? (laughs) Yes, amen. Okay, how about a really easy one, last one for you here. Corporal Desmond Doss. Come on, can we call him a hero? Winner of the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's the highest and most prestigious military decoration given to a service member. Here's what it takes to cross that threshold of getting one of those few Congressional Medals of Honor that are ever given in history. You have to distinguish yourself conspicuously by gallantry and intrepidity. It means fearlessness. And quote, above and beyond the call of duty. For those that are unaware of his story, let me just remind you, he was there in Okinawa at the Battle of Hacksaw Ridge. He personally rescued 75 men while under gunfire in the midst of this battle. But to up the ante just a little bit, he was the only person to win the Congressional Medal of Honor that I'm aware of to do so as a conscientious objector. What do you say, church, to those watching online? What do you think? Did he pass the threshold of being called a hero? I say definitely. You see, a hero is defined by the obstacles they have to overcome. If it's easy, you don't get to be called a hero. I'm sorry. By definition, it's got to be hard. By definition, in many cases, it has to be almost impossible but somehow you overcome it. So in order to really understand a hero, you really have to understand the obstacles that a hero has to overcome. And so tonight, for a few minutes, if that's okay with you, if we're really and truly gonna understand this hero of the faith, one of my favorite Bible heroes in the Bible, David, church, We've got to understand some of the obstacles that he had to overcome. And boy, did David have a lot of obstacles to overcome. What do you think? But here's what we're going to do for just a few minutes tonight. I mean, we could do a whole series just on David, a whole series on every single one of these Bible characters. But we're going to take just a few minutes tonight. And we're going to focus on the, if you will, the physically largest obstacle that King David had to face. That's right, we're talking about the battle of David and Goliath. But we're not going to start there tonight. We're not going to start at the battle, if that's okay with you. We're going to go back in time even further. In fact, I want to take you back in time to the evening, perhaps, of his birth. Imagine it with me. Listen to the screams of the mother piercing the night sky as she's in labor. The sounds of struggle. The shrieking baby. The midwife tentatively walking outside of the tent. 
The face of the anxious father, relieved to hear the baby crying and walking inside the tent. But imagine his joy turning to sorrow and perhaps being a little bit confused as he sees the baby just born in front of him. And imagine the father taking one look at this baby and realizing instantly that he must name him none other than Goliath. From the word conspicuous, which means attracting attention as by being unusual or remarkable. Church, let us be clear on something. The fact that he received the name conspicuous, Goliath, should in fact surprise us, and here's why. You see, they were a family descended from Anak. Remember that name? Numbers chapter 13, those 12 brave scouts were sent out to crisscross the land of Canaan. And 40 days afterwards, they came back and they brought that report. And they said, look, indeed, it's as you've said, Moses. It is a land that's flowing with milk and honey. But all of a sudden, there's that's just a little bit of a problem. We don't know quite how to describe it. There's giants in the land. In fact, we were as grasshoppers in their sight. The descendants of Anak were there. Dun, dun, dun. Everybody knew what that meant. And so here's this family, Goliath. They're descended from Anak. So this is a family of giants. All of them, every single one of them would have been extra large. But apparently there was something so conspicuous and so extra, extra large about Goliath that they determined that even in a family of giants, this one must be called Goliath. Conspicuous is by attracting attention. He was seemingly a giant among giants. So I suppose it shouldn't surprise us when we discover that he chose a career path as a fighter and a warrior. I suppose if you're the giant that's bigger than all the other giants, you are practically conscripted into that kind of lifestyle. But I want you to notice how the Bible actually describes him. I want to invite you to pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. So please turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. And I'm going to begin reading in your hearing. And it says, And a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now just a few verses before that, we get just a little bit of the context and a little bit of the setting. So on one side of the cliff was the opposing army, the Philistines. On the other side was the Israelite army. And the proposed location for the battle here was going to be the valley below. But notice how the Bible describes this giant of giants, Goliath. It describes him first and foremost as a champion. He was the undisputed heavyweight champion of at least the Philistines. 
Now, listen, church, you don't become a champion by having a losing record. You don't receive the title, if you will, of a champion by losing, but by beating and or killing every single person that ever challenges you. In a perverse way, think about this. In a perverse way, with every battle won, a champion becomes a little bit stronger. A little bit more experienced in the art of war. A little more confident in the pocket. A little more desensitized to bloodshed and war and gore. If anything, blood becomes a badge of honor by adding to your kill count. The Bible says that he was a champion. So have no doubt, church, that the path to being designated a champion is a bloody and a gruesome one. But then verse 6, notice how the Bible says, verse 4, that a champion went out from the camp of the Philistines. Now, what the Bible is beginning to describe is what historians call single combat. It was a representative kind of war, you know, having two opposing teams, if you will, just kind of go at it. It's seemingly inefficient, some could say. It's too bloody. It's a waste of resources. And so what we sometimes find in history is that people would take part in single combat. It was representative in nature. One person was chosen from each opposing army. And may the best man win. Listen. As the giant speaks, boastfully bellowing his challenge and curses across the canyon. Verse 8. He stood and cried out to the armies and said to them, Why have you come out to the line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. Ha. <laughs> I imagine a chuckle in between those words. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Indeed, single combat was perhaps efficient, but it was so risky. A lot was on the line. To agree to a single combat battle means that you're agreeing to the terms of the battle. And here the terms of the battle have clearly been laid out. Goliath was saying, if I win, all of you will become our servants. If you win, we will become your servants. And so on the daily, this giant among giants, this beast of a man called Goliath would Try to get people to sign up for the contract by cursing and intimidation, seeking to provoke the people of God to react to this, what he surely believed was a trap. 
I mean, who would step up to Goliath? So we've examined Goliath's title. He was called a champion. We've examined his proposition, this contract, if you will, that he wanted them to agree to. But I want you to notice what the Bible continues to say in verse 4. The Bible says, notice his sight in verse 4, it says that he is six cubits and a span. Now, Ellen White says that he was about 12 feet tall. For reference, in case you're wondering, I'm five foot eight. So just imagine about two and a half or so above me. Now, look, it's one thing to be six foot two, six foot five. A man that's about that kind of height is pretty intimidating. Can we be real with that? Or in my humble opinion, anyway. Because normally a man that's six foot two or six foot four or six foot five, they're, they're still equally proportioned generally. But I have to confess to you that I am not afraid of someone that's seven foot tall or even eight foot tall. In fact, notice this historical reference to the tallest, I think, American that ever lived. Robert Wadlow, he stood an astounding eight feet, 11 inches tall. But history tells us that he was plagued with health issues and he could only walk with a leg brace. So like I'm saying, I'm not afraid of someone that's seven feet tall. I'm not afraid of someone that's eight feet tall. Because generally after a man or a woman crosses a certain height, threshold, if you will, generally their bodies behave in a little bit more of a lanky way. They don't move quite as fast. They have to be a little bit more careful with their steps. And here what we see with this historical record of Robert Wadlow is that he could topple over quite easily because of his height. But listen now, church. This is not what we're talking about with Goliath. No. He was not just some tall, lanky giant. Indeed, the description that we find in the Bible is of a not just exceedingly tall giant, but a well-proportioned and exceedingly strong giant. Him, I would have been very afraid of. You would have been very afraid of Goliath. But then notice how the Bible continues to describe this giant among giants. Verse 5, it says, He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of silver. So just his armor weighed an astounding 125 pounds. I'm not going to ask you how much you weigh, but just imagine having 125 pounds on your back. And apparently this was just kind of a normal for a Goliath. He carries it into battle in a situation in which you have to be, by definition, nimble and quick. Verse 6. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a bronze javelin between his shoulders. So that would have been for throwing at a distance so that the opponent cannot get too close to you. Verse 7, now the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his iron spearhead weighed 6 
hundred shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. So just the tip of his spear would have weighed 15 pounds. For those of you that are good with geometry or physics and proportions, you know that if just the tip of the spear weighs 15 pounds, the rod itself, the staff itself, has to be really thick, really sturdy. And that would have been the weapon that he would have used, of course, for thrusting and killing an opponent that way when they got just a little bit closer. The shield that it's describing here. Notice how it says a shield bearer went before him. This wouldn't have been some kind of small shield. This would have been a shield that was about the size of a human. So behold, Goliath, this M1 Abrams tank of a man, the personification of a one-man army, Listen to him as he shouts and curses and insults and challenges not just Israel, but God. So on one side, the veteran, warrior, the undisputed heavyweight champion, and in the other corner, in the tan, girded up, trunks of a shepherd boy was David. He was not prepared for a fight. In fact, the Bible tells us that he was sent as a pizza delivery boy to his brothers. Isn't that the truth? His father Jesse said, son, I want you to take this bread and I want you to take this cheese over to your brothers, distribute the food to them, and then come on back now to me and give me a report on how the war goes. He was not intending to fight no giants. He was just being obedient to his papa. Then verse 44, you guys know how the story ensues. The giant speaks his, what we now know to be his last words that he will ever speak. He says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Broadcast the giant as little young David ran to him with only sling and some stones. And thusly begins one of the most epic battles recorded in history. So epic, in fact, that just about any kind of battle in which there is someone that is not expected to win against someone that is surely the incumbent and is expected to win, it's come to describe that very situation. Oh, that's surely a David and Goliath situation. Are you with me, church? But here's a question for you. That's the story. What is it? about. Have you ever thought about it? I mean, of course, it's a story that we tell so often, and it's a story worthy of telling just by the drama of the story itself. But why is it, have you ever thought, that God allowed this story to be recorded in sacred history? I want to suggest to you that there's at least two reasons. For one, 
It is a fulfillment of the promise that God gave Moses to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 3 where God said, I'm going to bring you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It is that. It is a fulfillment of the promise that the people of God were given in Exodus chapter 19 where God now, this recently freed group of slaves, and there's Moses in the front of Mount Sinai, and God now lays the terms for the covenant with his people. Do you remember what the terms are? He says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, by living holy, by being different, that was going to serve to be a witness to all the people around them. In other words, by living as a priest, that is by mediating the love of God to the people, they were going to bring the love of God and mediate the love of God and be a witness to the people around them. He said, I'm going to bring you to a land that's flowing with milk and honey. Come on, church. I'm going to put you in this position right by the Mediterranean that's the, the main highway of the entire world. Why? Because every single one of you are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That was God's ideal. Not just that one or two or three or some elders. He said, no, 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 no. That's not, no. Every single one of you are called to be priests. You're going to be a holy nation. That's why. So on one level, This story of David overcoming Goliath is definitely an example of God simply remaining true to his promise to situate the Israelites in this particular time and place so that they could fulfill their destiny that God gave them. So it's definitely that, but it's not just that. Because I want to suggest to you tonight that this story does not just have local historical significance concerning the mission and the people of God, but yea, it even has cosmic significance for even us today. Notice what Luke chapter 24 verse 27 says, please. Jesus speaking, Luke chapter 24 verse 27 And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, or it's written about Jesus, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning whom? Are you seeing what I'm seeing in that verse, church? So here is Jesus, the now resurrected Jesus, and he kind of catches on up with those two disciples that were forlorn and depressed because they thought, surely this was going to be the one that was going to liberate us from the Romans. You read the chapter there in the book of Luke. And they begin conversing, and it says, well, wait a second. I think you guys have got it a little bit wrong. Let me give you a little Bible study. And I love this. He says, the Bible says, beginning at Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, and the prophets, the other books in the Bible of the Old Testament at the time, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Note the principle that scripture is describing here. Jesus is symbolically represented all over the Bible. In case you're wondering, the scriptures are a history of God continuing to intersect with humanity. 
from before the time of Jesus, through symbols in the Old Testament, through Jesus incarnate, and later on through Jesus himself. The, G, the, the scriptures are all about Jesus. You remember that story, Exodus chapter, 30, Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. Moses approaches to see that curious sign of that bush that's burning and yet is not consumed. And he tentatively, curiously approaches, and all of a sudden the voice booms from the midst of that burning bush. The voice speaks, it says, remove your sandals. Why? Because the place where you're standing right now, it's holy ground. Why pray tell? How is it that a place becomes holy ground? Wherever God moves becomes holy ground. Simple. Wherever God is becomes holy ground. My father was military chaplain, served at the VA for many years after that, got, had the privilege of living overseas in Japan and Singapore and all throughout the United States. If there's one thing that I think is really, really cool is the idea of embassy. So you can be in the middle of Moscow and you approach the American embassy and you see the United States Marines there at the gate and you've crossed the threshold of that gate, guess where you are now? That's American soil. You might as well be back in soil in Berrien Springs, Michigan, because as soon as you cross into that embassy, you are standing on American soil. It's the same thing with God. Wherever God moves, that place, because of his holiness, that space becomes imbued with his presence. By the way, that's why the Sabbath is holy. Why? Because his presence comes and fills it in a special way. As Abraham Heschel described it, the Sabbath is a sanctuary in time. Wherever God moves, that place becomes holy. By the way, that's why God's people are called saints and holy as well. Why? Because God is living inside of us. God is moving, living, residing in the temple of your heart. So you become holy due to God's proximity. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, there's Joshua evaluating the assignment to overtake Jericho. He's trying to come up with his best strategy. You know the story. All of a sudden, that warrior appears before him with a sword drawn in his hand, and I imagine his heart stopping. And he, he ekes out the words, are you, um, are you for us or for our enemies? Do you remember what the Bible says then? He says, nope. He says, no. In other words, Joshua, let's get one thing straight. I have not come in to fall in behind your army. I have come to take over the whole thing. He says, no. But as commander of the armies of heaven, I have now come. And Joshua says, okay, Lord, what, what would you have me do? And what does the voice say? What does that warrior say? He says, you, you're, again, your shoes, your sandals, 
take it off now. Why? Because the place where you're standing, it's holy ground. Why? Because that's the presence of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus speaking through the bush, the pre-incarnate Jesus in the form of this warrior. Take off your sandals. So here's what I want us to do for just a few more minutes here tonight. Now that we've touched upon this principle, because I want you to see in action this reality that Goliath is actually a symbol of Satan. And I'm going to give you some evidence for that in just a moment. But I also want you to see that amazing reality that David is a symbol of Jesus. Can you hang with me for a few minutes? Keep your Bibles ready. I'm going to give you some evidence right now. You might want to write some of these down. Goliath had never lost a battle until that point. Satan had never lost a battle until a certain point. Generation after generation of people that had ever met Lucifer in battle, every single one succumbed to temptation. Family by family, one more defeated by Satan. Goliath was wanting a single combat representative battle, and Satan had been fighting a kind of representative battle, and guess what? He believed that he actually won. You remember the story in Job chapter 1? The Bible says that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. There was this heavenly council taking place, this celestial congress, if you will, had gathered. And who now appears as the one when they do the roll call representing earth? There's Satan, and he says, present. You see, in Satan's mind, he had won this representative battle, and he was now the prince of this world, the duly appointed leader. The fascinating part is that Jesus doesn't seem to object too much to that because in John chapter 16, Jesus describes Satan as the prince of this world for a time. Goliath was impossibly strong and becoming stronger with every victory and Satan is impossibly large and becomes stronger with every victory. You remember Genesis chapter 3, there's that serpent that flies. Jesus possesses this animal. All of a sudden in Revelation chapter 12, we find a great fiery red dragon. It's not just a flying serpent. It's not just a dragon, it's now a great, a mega dragon in the original. So what starts off as just a serpent has seemingly over time become stronger and more powerful. And at the end of earth's history, according to the book of Revelation, he is pictured now as a dragon. Goliath defied the God of Israel. Satan defied the authority of God in heaven. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7, Isaiah 14. Goliath is a symbol of Satan, but praise God that David is a symbol of Jesus. Can I give you some evidence for that? David was young and had never fought an actual battle. Jesus came in the weakness of human flesh, Philippians 2, verse 7 and 8. 
David fought Goliath in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. And Jesus is the Lord of hosts. He is the commander of all the armies of heaven, Revelation chapter 19. David was from the tribe of Judah and stepped forward when no one else was willing to fight. Jesus is called the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, and he has prevailed, Revelation chapter 5. David cut off the head of the giant. Jesus, via his crucifixion and resurrection, crushes the head of the serpent in fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. The similarities go on and on, but I want to simply end with one closer look at one little theme. When David beat Goliath, how many were given the reward of the victory? The whole army. Remember, church, this was combat by representation. It was single combat. So one person fought, but everyone got the fruit of the rewards. It's as if every single person had also been victorious in that battle. It was so risky. They were seemingly rolling the dice when they sent out David. But every person would receive full benefits of that one man's victory. And I want to tell you tonight, that in the same way that Israel received the benefits for David's victory, that we receive the benefits for Jesus' victory. Can I delineate just a few of those benefits that we receive? If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. Acts chapter 16, verse 31. But wait, church, there's more. The Bible teaches that the same power of God that was used to resurrect Jesus is made available to every single one of you in the name of Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. But wait, church, there's more. The Bible says that in that moment that we receive salvation, we are adopted into the family of God, and Jesus becomes our elder brother. And you know what? Family takes care of family. There's benefits to being part of a family. You mess with one family member, you're going to get the whole bunch. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. No demon, no devil once they become part of my family, I'm fighting for them all the way. Revelation chapter 19, that's exactly what it pictures. Jesus coming back. He's not the lowly Jesus anymore. He's not the humble Jesus. He's dressed for battle. He's dressed for war. And he's coming back to rescue his church. He's coming back to rescue his bride. He's coming back to rescue his family. Jesus said, no one can snatch them out of my hand. But wait, church, there's still more. Since we're adopted into Christ's family, we also become heirs with Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. But wait, church, there's more. Since we're heirs with Christ, Jesus says he will give us the right to sit with him on his throne. Revelation chapter 3. What do you say, church? Who gives benefits like that? Church, are you, are you seeing the benefits that were wrought through the representative battle of Jesus on our behalf? You didn't fight it. 
but yet you reap the rewards of that battle. The American author Ellen White puts it this way. She says, Christ was treated as we deserve, that we might be treated as he deserves. He was condemned for our sins in which he had no share, that we might be justified by his righteousness in which we had no share. He suffered the death which was ours, that we might receive the life which was his. And I love how she ends this little line in the book Desire of Ages, page 4. She says, with his stripes we are healed. You see, the way that Jesus won the battle was counterintuitively by presenting himself as a lamb offered up for sacrifice to demonstrate the love of God over and against the, the challenges and the accusations of Satan. I want to close by making an invitation here tonight. I wonder if there's anybody here gathered locally I wonder if there's anybody watching online right now that's maybe facing some kind of Goliath of circumstance in their life. So maybe here tonight, you're saying, you know what, there, there's, there's something going on in my life and I need some extra prayer. If, if you're facing a Goliath of circumstance in your life right now, just, just raise your hand up to heaven for just a moment. For those watching online, just, just raise your hand up from your home. God sees you, says, God, I'm, I'm facing something and I need your divine intervention. Amen. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for this one. Maybe some of you are facing a Goliath of sin or addiction. You're like, man, I've been trying to fight this battle. But Goliath is big. But I love how Scripture records David. And by the way, here's, here's the reality. You're never going to win. Ever. When you're doing your own strength. You try to do it on your own, you're going to fail every single time. Oh, but we got people. Oh, but we know people. Oh, but we got family. And I love how scripture records that David says, you come to me this way with sword and spear. I come to you, how church? In the name of the Lord of hosts. So if there's anyone here that's fighting some kind of Goliath of sin in their life, I tell you, based on the authority of the word of God, Jesus says, if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. You get back up. You keep walking towards Jesus. You keep following him. You keep calling on the name of the Lord. You keep battling in his name, and Jesus will give you victory. You just keep coming back. You don't give up. But maybe for the rest of us here tonight, maybe you just want to say, I want to open the doors to my heart anew tonight. Revelation chapter 3, the picture of Jesus knocking on the door of our hearts. He says, I just want to hang with you. I just want to sup with you. I just want to be family together with you. So how many tonight out of those gathered here local, of those watching online, how many simply want to affirm their commitment to Jesus here tonight? Just lift up your hands wherever you are. God bless you. God bless you. To all those watching online, God bless you as well. Let's, 
close or let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for all the decisions that are being made, not just here tonight physically, but all across the state of Michigan, all across the country, and we believe in different parts of the world as well. So Father, tonight we simply worship Jesus. We thank you for our elder brother. Thank you that we do not fight alone. Thank you that he stands beside us. And thank you that soon, oh so soon, he's coming back to rescue his church. So Father, we commit ourselves once again into your hands and we simply praise you tonight. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.